Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He has a provincial and national championship when he coached club. He's worked with our national team at the FISU Junior National Team and Pan Am Games. He's currently the head coach of Trinity Western, where he's been Youth Sports Coach of the Year. He's taken the team to nationals 10 times, five-time medalist, including winning in 2015. Please welcome to the show, Ryan Hofer. Ryan, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So, Ryan, we had Brody on the show, your son, and he told a pretty awesome story where I think volleyball families, sometimes we got to get creative where if you don't have enough people, you can't really play volleyball. But he mentioned this this pepper game and there was rules. You couldn't just hit it at somebody where it was this undiggable ball. But like if you could blow somebody up, you would get a point. And he said he just loved this game and you guys would have so many battles playing. It was pepper, but you were trying to get the other guy to shank it, right? So I imagine you deserve credit for this. Your wife deserves credit for that. Who invented this backyard game that he seemed to fall in love with? My brother and I did. So back when my brother and I were playing together, often it would be just him and I. And so we would play for Slurpees and we'd play for the crown. We'd call it the king crown, which is basically a figurative figurative thing. And so we just started building it and creating this world. It started with a serve, pass, set, hit. And you were just trying to rip it at the guy. But if you didn't hit it with control, and it was up to the individual, if they felt they should have gotten it or could have done better with it, then the other guy. I got a point where they're like, hey, no, no, I gave my best. And that was it. So you learn to stand up for yourself, say, no, that's it. Or, yeah, I could have done better. So you're also pushing yourself. And so we'd play games to 21 or 25 or 15, and we just put something on the line and usually slurp piece. <laughs> that's awesome. And I love how there's so much honor involved where, like, you would try to argue and work the rules, but there was times that, like, you knew you kind of shanked that one, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think right now with Brody, I still hold the crown. But uh, it's been a while since he played. I think he would take it back pretty quick. Oh, that's so cool to hear. And I think uh, one thing our listeners would get a kick out of is that uh, you've coached your children. And I'm wondering, was that ever a challenge for you? Because I think in some sports it can get uh, magnified or there's always like people's comments or anything. But uh, is that something you definitely enjoyed and always made time for? Or how did you kind of get over the hurdles of, you know, just the, the optics of coaching your own kids sometimes? Yeah, I asked them. I just said, hey, I... It will be there if you want me to coach. And they kind of knew that this was, I can't help them in any other area in life, basically, except for maybe volleyball. This is the moment, an area where I can help get better. And so I said, hey, as long as you want me around, I'll be there. And so I started with Brody, took Brody right up till he was in grade 11 and that whole force group, and then went down to Tyson and started taking Tyson up. And it just progressed there. I think people also assume that our life revolves around volleyball, like which it does in club season and in the season. But out of summer, we hardly played volleyball at all. And, and I'm curious. I, I think volleyball coaches sometimes like we enjoy coaching, we enjoy playing, but sometimes like watching can be pretty hard. Like, how do you kind of take your coach's cap off and just kind of like be in the bleachers and not be like call a timeout, call a timeout, switch something, sub that guy? Like, how do you not try to get so emotionally invested and try to like out coach the situation just instead of just being in the bleachers and enjoying watching your kids play? If uh, if I'm not coaching them, I make sure that they have good coaches so I can watch <laughs> and they know what they're doing. But it is, you kind of have to turn your, I, 
I kind of have a mind shift. I'm like, hey, I'm there to watch my kids. I hardly talk about kids. I would talk about the, the volleyball with my kids on the way home. And it's like, hey, guys, I just love watching you be a part of a team. I think that is probably the most common thing that I've said to my my sons when they've struggled or been frustrated. And I'm like, Tyson, Brody, Zach, I just love watching you be part of a team and just leave it there. And just our, our last uh, parent tip here before we dive into your career, but I, I also thought it was interesting in Brody's interview. He mentioned you didn't really guide him in his recruiting. And what I mean by that is he ended up being the Trinity guy, but he didn't really feel that uh, you or, or his mother really forced him to go down that road, that uh, it was up to him and he was having meetings with Benjo, but he, he wasn't shy to mention on the show. He was also talking to Alberta and a couple other schools. So uh, again, how do you kind of, you want to be involved in their post-secondary choice and you want to support them, but how come you didn't, you know, didn't you wear your Trinity jacket at dinner and just tell, kind of tell him what the family roots were there? We started recruiting him when he was one year old. So I don't think he really <laughs> had a choice in the matter. But when it came down to it, like we wanted it to be his decision. The last thing I wanted is a regret. Like I've recruited all these athletes. It's part of my job to recruit. And I see parents that are heavenly involved. And I see parents that are hands off. And so maybe I just had a lot of good examples going through the whole recruiting process, being a university coach to know how we wanted to handle it and how we didn't. Nice, nice. And just to switch gears for our listeners, obviously you're, you're a very established coach, but in trying to do some research before the show, uh, it, it looked like you, you were heavily involved in the club scene. You were an assistant at Trinity before it happened. Uh, you even took a maternity leave when your wife was the head coach. So uh, I'm curious, was this this a goal that you thought, like, I want to be a university head coach? Or when you were kind of doing your own uh, post-secondary and looking for a job, did you even think being a full-time volleyball coach was, was a career path? It, it wasn't for me. It was my wife's, though. She had gone to school, she'd gone to NCI, she'd gotten her level four, and then we got married and we're living in Kelowna. Neither one of us had our dream jobs, and this opportunity came up, and it was a chance for her to do what she loved, what she prepped for, and so we said, let's let's do it. Let's have at least one of us doing what we love to do, and then I started being an at-home dad. I was traveling with our with Brody at the time, who was under one, and I started assisting the men's, and then I started assisting Carol. I started coaching club right away and just fell in love with the game of volleyball or coaching it. And it just started to snowball from there. Started coaching with Volleyball BC. So I would go from mini volleyball in the morning to high school to university. It was just, I got a plethora of everything. Nice, nice. And when you finally get that chance to be a head coach, like, was there anything that just felt different? Like you're coaching at all these levels. Sometimes you're in a support role. Sometimes you're the head coach. But when you're the head coach of a university, was there just some some roles or expectations there that you didn't expect there to be at such a high level? <laughs> I thought I knew it all. Like <laughs> when I was assisting my wife, I'm like, oh, this is easy. You know, you practice plan a little bit. You know, you put a couple little mental training things in there. You go to the games, you make it happen. And then my first maternity leave was like, boom. I was just overwhelmed and I was like, wow, with everything, with some things that were happening outside and some the, how much I realized that my wife was doing behind the scenes that was now on my plate. And I just be, remember being overwhelmed and then just having it pressed upon my heart that was like, Ryan, all you need to do is take care of the 13 girls and the coaches in your care. Can you do that? I can do that. That's it. And so that just really narrowed my focus. and. That was 17, 18 years ago, and that's basically right there. That's what I do now. Just take care of the athletes that are my care and the coaches that have been entrusted to me as well. Yeah, that, that's great to hear. And I'm curious with your experience, and I mean, 
going to national championships is a challenge, especially coming out of that Canada West division. So with narrowing your focus like that, is seasonal planning and practice planning something that kind of fires you up? Because I think it's really impressive how your team does it every year. But when you get that new group, like is a national championship always the goal? And is that something you're putting on the whiteboard? Or how do you like to go into every season and kind of, like you said, narrow your focus, but also have that goal of something big happening at the end? Yeah, I, I kind of have a philosophy. I stole it from the Patch Adams movie. I don't know if you remember, but they say if you treat a disease, you win or lose. But if you treat an individual, you win no matter the outcome. And I kind of flipped a few words and I said, if you build a program, you win or lose. But if you build an individual, you win no matter the outcome. And then a quote that I also, I Marquise is the one that I heard it from. And he, I think he took it and he took it into his bronze medal win when he was at the Olympics with strong individuals make strong teams. And so that's been a core part of how am I going to build strong individuals who have a strong sense of self-worth, self-belief, self-confidence, so that they can go out there or be on the sidelines, wherever they are, do a lot of yearly planning. We have a YPI that we follow and look at. I build in the psychological components, the technique, the tactics. And so we do a fair bit of that. And what kind of advice would you give to some coaches who are kind of perking up and they're going like, yeah, I like seasonal planning, but uh, I think it's one of those things that nobody's really good at it when you start and you got to do it a lot to kind of get better at. So when you make your yearly training plan, is it fair to say like what you do in preseason isn't the finished product? Like, are you always kind of tweaking and massaging and kind of going like these little checkpoints or how do you kind of like know that it's not the finished product, but it is kind of a roadmap for your team that year? Yeah, I think the iPhones are awesome because I, I love whiteboards, so I have everything on a whiteboard, and you can put something on paper, and now I take a picture of everything. So I've got literally 10 years of pictures now, of just of every practice plan that I have, and so I just go up, go through it, and so I'm building my next year. I'm going, okay, what did I like, what I didn't like, and I can kind of progress and just kind of tweak it in a manner, and then I'll forget some certain things. I'm like, oh yeah, that was awesome, and then you can bring that into it, and so I think it's just writing down and for me adapting it when i remember if i wait an entire year i'm in trouble so i always write i always record and that helps me remember and put in place what i want to and how do you resist the temptation of saying well this worked really well last year i'm just going to do the same thing even though the group might have shuffled a little bit or somebody's a year older now like uh, how do you get fired up to do the details and do the work every single year where like i said you've got a good thing going how come it's not cookie cutter at this point some of it is, to be honest with you, like there's some cookie cutter stuff that I'll just continue to do over and over again. But then I think we get better at communicating. We get better at motivating. We get better at just firing them up in practice so that you can motivate it and more tweak it to who their personality is and try to understand like motivational interviewing, like asking questions now, like that has been the big piece for me rather than say, hey, you're going to do this and this is what we're going to work on. I ask a ton of questions like, hey, what are you working on right now? And they'll give me an idea. Of course, I'll have like the basics. This is what we're working on today. This is the system we're putting in place. But when it comes to individual stuff, I like to ask them so they have a little bit more autonomy and they feel that they're a part of the process. Now, at a university level where you have them for four or five years, I think the autonomy thing makes a lot of sense and you get that time to meet with them. Is it fair to say that you would do this if you're also coaching at the club level right now? I wouldn't do things much differently. Like whether I was coaching 18U, which I did for six years, and then I switched over to the men's with my son, I do a lot of the same things. I coach boys a little differently than I coach women. And so it does change a little bit, but I take a lot of the same systems, approach, tactics, techniques, a little bit of everything. 
Yeah, let, let's pull on that for a second, because when we had Becky Pavin on the show, like I, I think we agree the sport is more the same than it is different for men and women. But as, as she basically put it, men and women at baseline are different. So there are going to be different needs and different styles. So I'm curious within your style, is it a style of play? Is it a style of communication? Like, What are some little things that coaches should be aware of if they are going to work with both genders? To be a non-anxious presence. I think, I know it's a, kind of a big word, but I, I think if you can create an environment of playfulness, like Becky Pavin, when I had the chance to coach her for the youth national team back when she was in grade 10, she was a very playful individual. Like she liked to have fun. She liked to laugh. She liked to goof around a little bit. And I like playfulness in practice. I hate goofy. And so I feel that anxiousness will lead to frustration really fast. I think you can find the tone of uh, an organization, whatever an organization, a company, a business, if there is anxiousness there, is there's It'll lead to frustration. So I really believe that playfulness is the antidote. And so if you can have a little playfulness in everything you're doing, I think you can solve a lot of problems. And where is the line for you? Where where does Goofy enter and you gotta gotta blow it down and then stop it and squash it a little bit? Like where where do they finally cross the line for you? What would be an example of that? Something funny happens in practice. And you know, let's say someone gets bonked in the head or they laugh or they, they fall kind of funny. There's a little bit of a laugh. And then I want them to get focused on it right away. It's not that they can't goof around, but then all of a sudden they start another thing happens or another thing happens. And then the next thing, all they're doing is laughing on the court. And that's when I kind of step in and go, hey, hey, you laughed about it two, four, five, five plays ago. Now it's time to move on and kind of get it with the game. So you can't be focused when you're goofy, but you can rebound really fast when you're playful. And so it's all in how they're laughing and how they're joking around that kind of just start to put out. I'd describe it but you know it when you see it and they know it when they see it too and i like how you mentioned like the anxiousness and just your presence because i think that's easier said than done whether it's like a late second semester or maybe it's a rivalry game or maybe you are approaching canada west playoffs or a national championship like how do you and your coaching staff like to carry yourselves so you're not adding that and trying to make it feel like this is a big moment so therefore we got to change our behavior versus like how are you trying to be consistent from from that first time you have a meeting in preseason all the way to like a national final? Oh, I believe that my mood, my reactions, my facial expressions, the words that I say, how I deal with stress there, all is going to impact how they play. And so we were even just playing a game yesterday and we were down. It was 23, 21, somewhere around there. And I called a timeout and it's like in inside, I'm like, I'm a little bit edgy inside, but I'm like, they can't see that. I'm like, hey, ladies, let's catch them. Let's catch them by 24. You know, let's do a couple things. Hey, who's going back to serve? Okay, if you're going to go on a little run. So it's being optimistic about everything. You, you have hope. And so I never want to give up on a team. I always want to create hope. And I never want my tone to be edgy unless I feel that effort isn't there or I don't feel their focus. Then I'll pull them in and kind of give them a little bit of the firm direction, I'll say. But I want them to just stay lighthearted because I see it all the time. Coaches will get a little more anxious. They'll project that on their team. And then it in turn, their teams play differently because of it. Nice, nice. And hopefully some of our listeners will remember this when uh, you guys took down a national championship. It was actually at U of T in their new gym at the time. Beautiful facility. But one thing that me and some other coaches were talking about in the bleachers was 
how engaged the box squad was and they had genuine joy and appreciation for the game. I don't know if that was special to to that year or that's something that Trinity prides themselves on, but it, it looked like they were like, they weren't jealous. They weren't upset. They were playing. They were fully engaged. They had their little coordinated sellies going on. But do you remember that year? Is that unique to that group of, of students you had? Or is that just something Trinity does really well where there's just this genuine appreciation and joy and engagement going on, even though they're not in the starting seven? I would say it started that year. And so I remember a fellow coach, a good friend of mine, watching my team a year or two before. And he said, Ryan, like looking at your team and I'm seeing girls at the sideline that really look like they don't want to be there. Like I'm saying, oh, I kind of, you learn from those ego punches. And I can't take a lot of credit for them. I think the girls on that sideline really wanted to create an environment that could really support the other ones that were out there. And they were a younger group combined with a mixed group. We had a lot of more senior athletes and they all dove into that, whether they were doing the airplanes or the helicopters. And it's continued on since then so that we have a good vibe on or off the court. And I can't take a lot of credit, but I think the girls on the sidelines really created that. Yeah, it's great to hear about your process and how you like to bring joy and everything seems to be very deliberate. And one one thing we're trying to find on the show, and believe me, there's no right answer. There's no hack for this. But one thing I think coaches do struggle with is you set your goal and you want to win a provincial championship, a national championship, but the semifinal and it goes wrong and you got to get up for that bronze medal match. And I'm curious now hearing your process and how you like to plan things. What goes on in that meeting? What what are you encouraging the leaders on the team to do? Like, how do you get that bounce back? So, like, you you're not you're dreading it. Like, everybody wants to be in the final, but when that opportunity is not there and you got to bounce back, like to me, there's a big emotional difference when you look back five years and say we won bronze or we finished fourth, right? So, how do you get them up either the evening before or that morning to kind of get something out of them that match, even though the disappointment's there and nobody can hide it? Yeah, I like them to embrace their emotion. I don't want them to hide it. I don't want like. I forget which year it was. It might have been first or second year. We had won that one. We won bronze, but we'd lost in that semifinals. And we were heartbroken. I had girls weeping in the change room. And just some were mad, some were angry. And so we want to embrace that emotion. And then I, but I also want to create a team that's resilient and tough. I'm like, how are we going to be remembered? And so usually I have a theme for that year and I bring it back to that theme. And so like, some of the years was be remembered. This year, our theme is we belong. So there's a couple different components to that. And so I really try to bring it back to either our core values as a team, uh, which is live free, play free, protect the team and tough them together. And so with those things, I bring it back to something there. Like, how are we going to remember? Like, are we going to be the team that just gave up? Or are we going to give our best? The only thing I ask for for my athletes is that they give their best emotionally, physically, mentally, relationally. When they go out there, win or lose, that's all we can ask of them. And it's a tough, tough one. And I'm curious, this might be too much behind the curtain, but I'm hoping you can share something because I think for coaches, sometimes it's frustrating that you, you come up with this mantra and you really want to deliver and it might look good on the t-shirt, but how are you staying connected to it? on a Tuesday practice or how are you staying connected to it when it, when it's a game, that's kind of a throwaway game and it's a bit of garbage time. Like I, I think, you know, Disney makes it sound good in a speech and it always comes together in those situations. But when you set a goal like this and you want to be remembered or something like that, how are you making sure we boil that down to a daily task so everybody can connect to it? We have something in our gym called the daily drip and we want to daily drip our values. Even if it's small, two minute talk, one minute talk. And I can't say that but I've done a good job of this until recent years. And so I was challenged by Nicole Davis. 
So she was an Olympian down in the U.S. She came off, spoke to our team, and she just kind of said, hey, Ryan, you just have to daily drip put into their lives, pick topics, pick videos. And so I'm like, oh, I like that, the daily drip. And so we, that's what we started calling it. And so I spent the entire COVID preparing a ton of different drips that we would go into their, we would kind of invest in their lives. Sometimes it's it's a leadership component. Sometimes there's a spiritual component. Sometimes it's a culture component, a theme component, but it somehow drips into one of our core values over the period of time. And then I've had the athletes create a daily drip. And that has been instrumental in staying connected to our values. And as a coach, has there ever been a moment where you hear this story or this anecdote or you watch this YouTube video and you're all fired up and then you show it to the team and they're just, they're not, they're not fired up. They're not getting the same feelings from you. Like, what do you do in those situations where, you know, you've manufactured this moment, you're fired up to deliver and it just, it doesn't resonate with the squad. Yeah, it happens for sure. If I can, one of the strengths I think I have as a coach is my ability to see something and then make it our own and then deliver it in a manner that resonates with them. And so I have had moments that flop like that, but I would say it's one of my strengths is to find a way that it can connect with them. Um, my athletes might see differently and maybe I'm not in tune with my own abilities, but uh, it's it's something that I try to make sure it connects it. I practice it. I don't just kind of get an idea and go and wing it. For me, I spend a lot of time prepping on these things. It might be even a couple hours a day or a couple hours in the summer, and then I review it as I get ready to put it in place. And so I've thought about it a ton before I send it out there. And I'm curious how you've connected your experience with the national team with your youth sports team. And what I mean by that is, man, it's got to be tempting to work with the national team, but you see what uh, Bree King's doing or Hillary Howe's doing, and you're going, those athletes were just in our gym a year ago, and now they're doing this cool stuff. I can do that cool stuff with my athletes now. Like, how do you keep it boiled down to like what the development level is and what you can kind of borrow from the international game versus where your athletes are right now? Because uh, I think as coaches, sometimes we get really tempted to copycat, but it's really important to know where your athlete is that day, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, like when I was in Tom Black's gym a few summers ago, that was the year that I spent a fair bit of time in it. It's like, you're constantly evaluating, like, what can my athletes do? Oh, we can't hit a D ball or a C ball kind of the way that we're doing it, or even a pipe ball. But I think we can also be stretched more, more than what we're doing. The women's game at times is 10 years behind the men's game. And I think we need to change that. Why are we behind the men's game that much? And so coaching my son for those six years really helped me in going, oh, we can do this. Sure, women can do this. Why do we not do that? And so all of a sudden now you're seeing the pipe more in the women's game. You're seeing the D-ball, the C-ball. Like you're seeing back row more layered into what we're doing. And so it's kind of, we do test it out. We want we have to make sure that, you know, statistically it's measuring. We're not just setting everything to, to just do it for the sake of doing it. And so we try to measure everything to make sure that it's actually going to be efficient for us. Yeah, I like how you mentioned that, that you're actually statting things because, uh, I always struggle with that too, where how do you actually measure growth? Like, are you willing to like, say, I, I don't know, like, let's say the pipe example, are you willing to kind of invest 12 weeks into it and see where it ends up? Or when do you finally pull the shoot and say, ah, it's not going to happen this year? Like, because I think it is important to stretch and challenge athletes. But like you said, if it's not working, we need to be able to move on if it's costing us points, right? Yeah, we like to have a 10 day window. So we do take stats and practice. But we have this 10 day window where 
when the tech A gets put on, that other one drops off. And so what we can do is we can see the stats evolving and see people's improvement from season to season and actually month to month. 10 days is about a month of practices. And so in that month, we can see improvement happening. And at the end of the day, if we can do it in a game, is it going to be efficient for us in the game? And that's where the real test is. And is there something that you've kind of, not to put a cap on it for right now, but just the current state of the game, like you mentioned, that women can hit it to the back row, they can run it super fast, but is there something that's just catered a little bit more to the women's game or the men's game, whether it's the women are just more effective at hitting the step around or the slide, or maybe there's going to be a couple more spin servers on the men's side? Like, is there anything that really is gender specific, or or is the game so wide open that if you have the horses to do it, that, that either gender can pull that, that skill off? Because don't get me wrong, there are some men who can hit step rounds, and there's some women who can spin serve, right? So I don't think that it's a hard and fast rule but you kind of need those exception athletes every once in a while to pull it off so there's one thing that every man that i've brought into my practice says can you guess what it's going to be and they say wow this is wicked hard i I, I bet you it's them serve receiving against your athletes 100 percent. they will put themselves on that serve receive line and they want nothing to do with it our ability to serve a ball anywhere between 66 and 71 kilometers an hour, whistling just over that tape, they're like, holy crap, I want nothing to do with that. And they just, they're out of there. So I think that's one of the things that it is tough. Like the new Macassa ball has changed it a little bit. I think we're going to see passing numbers go up. I think you're going to see more girls spinning. I think you're going to see more back roads because that last Macassa was built to slow the game down and it moved like crazy. And so, I think this new ball is going to be really help our women's game. And with you going back to stats, there might be some club coaches kind of rolling their eyes at me saying, well, that's great. He's got a full-time coaching staff. He's got access to video. He's a full-time coach. He can like spend an afternoon doing it. Is there anything as a club coach when you were, lack of a better term, you were a parent and you had a full-time job and you were coaching your kid because you enjoyed it? Was there still stats and data you were keeping that a, that a casual coach who can't invest all these hours can still track to you know measure skill acquisition or just like, is your system working? Little things like that. For sure. I, I think, the way you structure your drills, you can just basically have a winning and a losing cycle. Like you can structure your drills in such a manner where your winners get texts and you put it on the board. If you don't have anybody, like anybody can keep stats nowadays. All you do is have to write a tick and it doesn't take much to train them. You could do a little sister. You could do a teach a parent how to do it. Or you could just keep it simply. Like I remember a player was in my office and she's like, coach, what's the most important stat? And I think she was trying to box me into a corner. I'm like win percentage. Like, are you winning? And so I think every coach can build their drill around that. And I think you'll have to be careful. You need enough body of law knowledge to find out if you're winning or losing. But there's something special about players who go out there and just fight like the Dickens. Is it fair to say you kind of subscribe to the, the coach's cauldron? Is that something you track? Does that influence uh decisions at game day does that influence your starting lineup like when you say you want to chart winners like how often are you doing that and then does that influence playtime we are doing some sort of drill every day that kind of gets recorded on the board i used to create a very in-depth competitive cauldron and i've kind of i would say gone away from it in the sense that the girls might know that i'm tracking it or not but i'm not i'm not using it to base a lot of decisions i like to use certain metrics within the practice and the game statistically wise to help me out a little bit more. I think win percentage in six on six games is really important. Small games 
um, attack efficiency, passing efficiency. I think those numbers will help you a little bit more. Have you ever seen it misused or have you ever seen an opportunity where maybe an athlete doesn't try stuff they're not good at, or maybe it slows down their learning because they really want to win that drill. Like is there time in your gym for learning and then time for winning? Or have you found a way to like mix those together? Because uh, to take a pessimist view, I think that's the only flaw I've ever heard of the cauldron is, well, now the athlete doesn't want to expand their skills because if they lose that drill, they don't get that tick. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the challenges that I had earlier on. And I would say for the first month, I'm just training one or two people how to keep stats. Don't even look at them. Don't even care. I want them to try. I want them to learn. And then I make sure that there's block time in practice where this isn't being recorded. We don't care. And it's a six on six time. And so we'll go from, from a little bit of tutoring to some small game stuff to now some larger six on six stuff where we're kind of a little bit more teaching. We don't care about the results. We want you to experiment. And then we go to a six on six time where it's a little bit more competitive and we will take some numbers there. And so because at the end of the day, you do need numbers. But the 10-day window also allows them to improve and get better over time. Now, by charting this and treating winning like a skill, has this kind of helped eliminate like the optics? Because I think as coaches, sometimes we look at the athlete and the one who's fiery and the one who really wants to, we say, oh, that, that athlete's competitive. They're a gamer where uh, I think if you chart this over time, you're going to find an athlete who might not be a big Sally athlete. They might be not be fist pumping or hitting the ground when they don't get a point, but they want it just as bad as everybody. And sure enough, they're going to find a way that they're the one winning 25-22 at the end of that drill, or they're the ones getting to 11. That uh, I think sometimes we have a, a misconception of what a competitive athlete is. And I'm curious if that's happened in your gym as well. Well, I've got two right now that are complete opposites. I've got Emma Gamash, so you know exactly. Like, she's fiery. You see it. And then I've got a Savannah Purdy. Just two to be example. I have a lot of different ones. Where Savannah, you hardly know what she's thinking. Like, you just, she's just stone cold. We call her a stone cold killer. But she, at the end of the day, I didn't realize it. When we did some strength finder tests with her, you have to be a real fierce competitor in order to get the competitive strength finder component. And boom, it was one of her number one things. I'm like, oh, interesting. I would have never have guessed it based on her personality and how she perceives that she was even competitive. But yet she is one of the more decorated athletes we've ever had come through a program. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's a fiery competitor. And so I believe that you need to cater to all of those different personalities. They're just going to show it a little bit differently. And I think stats are great. And sometimes you just find what you're looking for. So I'm wondering, has there been a positive ripple effect in your gym that if you're going to chart winning and losing, do you then find athletes who who almost try to pull their teammates together? Like I imagine you're swapping teams and you're always playing ones versus twos, but because like winning is such a priority, do you find people just being a better teammate or, or try and find a way to fire people up? Like we've had TJ Sanders on the show and he'll, he'll talk about how he treats the middles differently based on their personality. Like maybe this guy needs to be fired up and pushed and bullied a little bit where this guy needs to be calm and talked about strategy and stuff like have you seen that effect in your gym where people try to figure out what uh, buttons to press with their teammates and what's going to help them perform better so you know i I can win this drill by helping you do better too yeah i've lost some really important matches because um we call it in the cave and so i believe when athletes are in the cave meaning they're not performing to their best how do we help them get out of that cave and so there's some athletes where you got to go in and you got to drag them out there's some, and that might be that hard push. That might be that little bit more of aggressive. There's some people like, I'm not in this game. They don't even acknowledge it. And those are probably, that's when it's the hardest. And then there's some that they just need a little encouraging. Hey, we're over here. We're over here. Come on out. And they just need just an encouraging word, a pat on the back. And so that's something we've had to have those hard conversations because I've been in national finals 
I've been in national semifinals and going, I don't know how to help this athlete. And I'm like, hey, what do you need from me? And the athlete's like, I don't know. I'm like, oh boy, we're in real trouble here. And I put that on me. I want to take a lot of ownership in making sure that I know what my athletes are going to need. Friend of the show and Team Canada Beach Volleyball athlete Grant O'Gorman has teamed up with Movember to help raise awareness for testicular cancer and men's health. Check out our show notes to get a link to Grant's page and donate today. Movember, whatever you grow, will save a bro. Definitely, definitely. And I'm curious to hear how much you're aware and how much you're paying attention to. How do you empower your assistant coaches to also be aware of what the team needs and what they're looking for? Because it sounds like you're pretty dialed in, but how do you empower the the athletes or excuse me, those coaches around you to also have a voice and also try to pull these athletes out so we can get the best of them too? Yeah, I think the number one thing is I want coaches around my team who are great with people and I don't let people, anybody just in the door. So I've gotten to know them personally. They come in at, let's say the ground level and I have them run drills and I just watch and I see. And so I want to make sure that they have great communication skills. They know how to handle their conflict, that their intentions are right. Like, why are you in my gym? Why do you want to be in my gym? And so if it's a selfish game, they wanted this, like I'm trying to know their heart with where they're at. And then, I'm hoping that they can communicate really well. It's easy to teach them the X's and O's. This is what I, how I want you to teach passing, setting. These are the systems we're working on. But sometimes it's hard to teach that communication component. And I'm hoping that that's in place ahead of time. Like right now, our coaching staff, I've got Brendan McTavish. I've got Duncan Harrison. I've got Alicia Perrin. We've got a few others that come in that are great. But they're all really good at communicating, asking questions. I encourage them to ask questions. So that they can develop a relationship and they're not just sitting there pounding at them. Like, if you don't have a relationship, you're not going to be successful. I want us to be a relationship-based program. That's that's so cool to hear. But And how do you add action to it? I think you may have just covered it. But is it fair to say in your gym, you're not running every single drill that you'll empower this assistant to set this up or they can talk to the team? Like, how do you create those moments? Because I think that there's no shortcut to relation building, but they have to have that opportunity. So it sounds like you're not the only voice in the gym every time. Is that fair to say? Oh, for sure. Like I've tried to divide our gym up a little bit. Like this year, for example, I'm taking our offense. So basically serve, receive to attack. That's where I'm doing a lot. Most of the coaching. I've got another coach that's doing the defensive component, the block and backcourt. Got another coach that's just doing the middle. So she's doing a little bit of both of those. And so I want them to develop a relationship with those athletes that they can communicate, that they're touching base with them on a regular basis and it's outside of the gym as well as inside of the gym so we try to make and then i've got another one that's working with the setters and so i'm trying to cover everything and that relationships are being developed that's so cool to hear and just to jump over to your team canada experience how do you find the the challenge of switching roles because it sounds like you've got a system you've definitely got a way of running your program but when you're asked to step into team canada's gym and maybe you're not in a head coaching role maybe you're an assistant coach with this program or a second assistant or or maybe you're just there at kind of the 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 oval there with with multiple team practices going on like how do you kind of flip that switch where now you're in a support role or maybe somebody else has a vision for how they want things done like is it easy for you to kind of mold into that or do you ever have to like kind of know that you're not the the one voice or the true leader of the program and you got to do what Shannon wants or what Tom wants in that situation. For sure. I, I feel really fortunate. And then the last three years, um, my systems are very similar to Tom Black's and Shannon Windsor's. So 
what they came in and did, for example, a bunch swing block or like it's just something that I've done for a while. And so a lot of that similar the things were similar with Tom. And then as I worked with Shannon and Shannon was doing what Tom wanted. And now that Shannon's in charge, I'm trying to figure out what she's looking to get. And it's actually very similar to what we're doing. There's some differences. And I want to find out what those are really quickly. Like, hey, how are you teaching this? So if I'm in her gym, I have no problem adapting to what she wants and how she wants it done because she's very specific in what that's going to look like. And so I just, I have no problem adapting to that. And I would say when I've gone with other coaches that are completely different, like Olivier Trudeau, we've done a couple of Fichu games together. He had a different idea and I just wanted to be the best assistant, assistant coach that I could for him at that time. And we'd have these, we'd have these, you'd call them fierce conversations where we would be behind closed doors and we're like, hey, we're duking it out here. But man, when we get out through the doors, they, the athletes don't know that we had a disagreement about something. Now, is that on the head coach to kind of enter those conversations? Or like you said, if it's behind closed doors, should an assistant coach feel the, the freedom to kind of speak up and say, hey, I know we're doing it this way, but have you thought of doing it this way? Or even to go one step further and say, that's crazy. I don't like what we're doing. Can we talk about this? Like, how do you kind of enter those conversations? Because it can be hard. Like, if, if you're coaching with the national team head coach, it's hard to raise your hand and say, I don't like what we're doing here. Yeah, I I don't know if I would do that with the national team. I think it would. I would have to have a, a special relationship with that coach at that time in order to be able to challenge them. I would probably have to be a lead assistant. And so I, it all depends on what my role was. I don't think my role was ever at a place where I could do that when I was when helping Tom and Shannon that summer. So Shannon and I worked a little bit closer together, but I think you can ask questions. And I think you can ask questions in a non-threatening manner that can just kind of help you answer yours. Like, hey, have you, what do you think about this? And they're likely have thought about it. And they're like, nope, I don't like that because of this, this, and this. I'm like, all right, well, you move on. So. I think as an assistant coach, your number one goal is to be loyal. So when I was Shannon's assistant, the number one thing that I wanted her to feel and sense from me was loyalty and that I had her back all the time, every day. If I disagreed, I would talk about it behind closed doors if that ever happened. But in front of everything, I wanted her to feel at that time that I was supportive in everything that she did, that she wouldn't second guess me for a moment. And with relationship building being so important to your coaching, I'm curious, what do you do in those national team summers where it's a little bit short, like a couple of friends of the show come to mind where like, maybe you need to coach up Lane Van Buskirk, but you know what, she's an Ontario athlete who went to school in the NCAA. So you've probably never interacted with her. Or what do you do in situations where you're, you're trying to coach up Jen Cross or Kyla Ritchie, who are athletes who have, have been on the national team longer than any of us. And now you're visiting their space and now you've got to like have a voice there. So with, with relationship building, like I said, being so important to you, how do you go about that with either an athlete you don't know or an athlete where like you're, you're literally in their space with everything they've given and built for the program? It's hard, but I think it starts with a really important question. It's like, hey, is there any way that I can help you today? And you're asking them basically, can I coach you? And they say, no, I'm good. Like, okay. But then I've had Tom Black come to me and say, hey, Ryan, I want you to coach so-and-so. And you're like, I don't know if she wants me to coach her, but I better go over there and do what he wants. Or Shannon saying, hey, I need you to go do this. It's like, okay, I'm going and doing it. But I, I think I've learned to ask those questions, say, hey, can I help you today? And most athletes there are pretty open and receptive. Or you say, hey, what are you working on that I can help you with? Like, hey, I'm working on my four-step approach from slow to fast. Can you help me with that? 
absolutely boom, away you go. So I think you're you need to have that permission or it's not gonna be successful. Definitely, definitely. And I'm I'm guessing at the national team you're never put in a position where you have to like call an athlete out. Like there's never been a situation where you're talking about uh their offensive system and you had to put it up on the video screen and say, Hey, like you you did this when you should have done that. Like has that ever been your role where you didn't have the relationship but you still had to call the athlete out, whether it was feedback or a presentation or anything like that? Certainly not on the national team. And I think that that probably wouldn't have been my place in the roles that I had. I would have left that for the head coaches at that time. And so with my own team, certainly like that happens in video that happens when we review it. So it happens there, but I'd be very careful to do that in another team setting. I wouldn't want to overstep my bounds. Definitely. Definitely. And I'm curious, does your approach ever change uh, again with the shortened seasons with the national team, like U sports is a pretty long season and it follows that schedule where you kind of know what's happening versus man, you go to some of these multi-sport games like a FISU or a Pan Am games, like, do you have to handle it differently as a coach because it is that tournament format because there are so many distractions going around? Like, is it all the same to you or do you have to kind of switch your focus when it is like a different format or just a, a different level representing Canada at a multi-sport games? Yeah, I'm, I'm used to playing the same team on the weekend. I've got an entire week to prep for them. I have as much video pretty much as I want that I can put everything in place and I can have a nice plan. And I think the hardest part about going to a games is you're going to play three different teams on three different days. You've got to do all this prep in place and you better start rolling. And so they are long nights, hard work, and you've got to have good people around you to help put all these plans. Like the turnaround time is nuts. And so that was probably the biggest learning component. And then you just have to have good people around that you can laugh with at two in the morning, getting a cup of coffee to try to go for another hour. Curious your thoughts on this, because when we were lucky enough to get Tom Black on the show, and I thought it was interesting that he got the program to a certain point where all of a sudden, I thought it was a great move by him. You got the seniors and the Bs and, and FISU and everybody's training together. But, but one effect that comes from a system like that is you're cutting and you're constantly moving rosters. And sometimes people are going to be disappointed, but they have to go to practice the next day. And I'm curious with just you being in the gym, but also coaching that Pan Ams team, like, how did the athletes manage that? Because it can't be easy to say, hey, Ryan, you're going to this tournament and you're going to be on this team. And sorry, Josh, you're on this team and now you're training at this time. Like you're constantly shuffling and moving. But I think those are great moves for the program. But I'm curious, as our sport continues to grow and the women's program continues to excel, like how did you witness those conversations happening? And how can an athlete still feel benefited that like, even though they went to Pan Am Games and that wasn't the, the A squad, how could they still get fired up and feel like that was like a meaningful competition for them that summer? I would say the advantage we had is the Pan Am Games might have been one of the most exciting events that summer. And I know that Tom wanted to take the A team to it, but because it was a great event, those girls that got to go to that Pan Am Cups had an incredible experience. And so with it, there for sure, there's a little bit of letdown that they weren't just at the world qualifiers trying to do this, whatever, for for Canada and not being able to attend that. I don't recall a ton of movement for us. Like we had the A and the B group, and then every once in a while, someone got pulled up. It wasn't too many people. A couple people got moved down, but I saw great attitudes. I think Shannon does a great job of communicating. She's really clear. She's really direct. She doesn't mince her words. She's, she gets to the point really fast. And so she communicated really well. She has her, I think she called it a five-minute connect. And so almost every day, she's trying to connect with someone just for five minutes. How are you doing? What's going on? What's happening in your life? And she's really direct in those times. And I think she does a really good job of that. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I think Shannon deserves a lot of credit. I think Tom deserves a lot of credit. But for the 
the, the turnaround, it just seems like it's really exciting to be around the women's program. So as somebody who's in the youth sports program, and obviously you're, you're, you're around the club scene and, and you're probably recruiting some of the athletes that do go to the NCAA and come back. What are you crediting the, this spike in the women's program? Like I think, like I said, I think Tom and Shannon are doing a great job and they're sharing a lot, but there has to be more to it there. So what do you kind of see as kind of the big spike that the, the women's program is gaining so much momentum and it's just exciting to be around right now? Not, nothing's coming to mind. <laughs> so this might be one of those questions I might have to think about. Um, well, well, if I had to rephrase it, and this isn't a knock on people, but I mean, like the the Lupo era, it didn't really work. There were some spikes of excitement, but it didn't really last long term. Uh, Marcello didn't really have the same impact where it seemed like Tom got involved and everything was ready to go. And, and maybe as an outsider, maybe I'm making it too simple, but it just sounded like it, it came together and the team was all of a sudden competitive and relevant where we're going to that Olympic qualifier and we have expectations of going to the Olympics, even though Canada versus Dominican. Dominican, I don't know if the last 10 years, if they thought we were a threat, like you said, we're usually the underdog. So uh, I don't mean it as a slight as the previous coaches. It just seems like with the current ones, it, it came together pretty quickly. And, and I, like I said, they deserve credit, but uh, I think some other people deserve credit as well. I really feel what changed with Tom and Shannon is how the athletes get treated. I was really, really hoping that we would have a North American coach for them. And so I, no, no knock against any, any of the previous coaches, but I think there was a culture component. I also feel the Richmond Oval did an amazing job at that bid and creating that environment and the tools and the resources even like Carrie McDonald at the national team level being a sports scientist and putting it down. Like the resources that I think everybody had got beefed up in the last five years. And it just allowed, even when Marcello was here before Tom came, I don't think he knew or was avail- knew all the things that he had access to. And I think Tom was able to do that. I think Tom was also could relate really well. He had just come from USA Volleyball. And so he took almost all of their systems and different things from what they were doing. And so I think there was a lot of trust that was built instantly. It's like, yes, this makes sense. Yes. Oh, boom, dialed in. Like Tom and Shannon's practices are really focused, dialed in, and they work hard. Yeah, that, that's great to hear. Cool vibe. There was a really neat vibe in that gym. And it just, it seemed to change. And like people wanted to be there and they were going to go through a wall for their coaches. And I'm hoping you can describe this in your own words, because, again, I'm just such a big Tom Black fan. But to go back to him when we had him on the show, uh, I mentioned was attempting just to pull out your binder and say this is USA Volleyball 2.0. And he said, no, absolutely not. That's not what we did. Uh, But at the same time, there's principles and methods that in volleyball are just factual to him. And whether he's coaching USA, Canada, coaching Team Mars, like there's just going to be some things that these are Tom Black's philosophies and he's going to go for. So uh, I'm curious like you said, you guys have similar systems. How did you see him manufacturing the team where he just wasn't giving this vibe of saying, listen, I've been at the top of the mountain. I've been with USA Volleyball. He didn't say that once as far as I know. So how do you, how would you kind of describe the, the system he developed without just saying, guys, I've seen this work. We're just going to do the same thing I just did a couple of years ago. Yeah, no, I, I think it was a little bit different because he, he had seen obviously what USA had done. But I think he'd also being, but he wasn't the head coach. So there were ideas and things that he wanted to do within his own system. So I think that's what you do as coaches, right? You gather what you feel is going to be the most important pieces, and then you create it on your own. And so he never really said, oh, USA, USA, USA. Like He made it about Team Canada, and he did a really good job of that. And even the same with Shannon. Shannon came from Australia, and she's made it Team Canada. And we don't reference those 
other countries and it's like what are we going to do what are the best in the world doing because we're all modeling there's no nothing new under the sun and so what can we see around where can we be a little bit creative and where are our coaching strengths and just to circle back to your point about the oval there but also the volleyball bc community as a bc guy i was hoping you could maybe speak to this where as an outsider again i'm amazed how fast it happened with even little things like the athletes have billets. So now you want to try out for FISU, but you're from a different province. You come out like the national team has a way to try to find you housing. So you feel taken care of. And there's just like one less distraction or trying to find athletes like just different housing opportunities. So when they are with the national team, they can really focus on volleyball because be- being a pro and then coming home to your national team, like you're missing out on a lot. So to find a way to make them feel comfortable, like in your eyes, how much is like just the volleyball community in BC kind of stepped up to support the women's team? But you can even see it now with the net program. Every girl who's coming in across the country, I think there's 16 to 18 of them, is either getting billeted out, so they live in a billeted home, and the Richmond community, like the group that put that together to make sure that Richmond was prepared for this, had a bunch of billet families in place. And it's something that they're continually working on. And so I don't know the ins and outs of it. I don't know how if Volleyball BC connected or it's Team Canada that's doing it. What I do is I see these young ladies right now, young women, are taken care of, they're in good homes, and they're able to compete and train for their country now at 17 and 18, and now they're ready for their university, and then they're going to come back and be a part of the next gen. Like, we have this NEP, next gen, 18, nice progression that we never really had before either. And then how would you deal with somebody challenging and saying, well, if I'm not on the pathway at NEP, like, how am I going to get in where... It, it is important, and I think it's special for athletes to make it, but it's not the be-all, end-all, and there are other entry points along the system. So how would you encourage somebody who says, you know, I'm not part of that program. Does that mean I can never play for our senior national team? Well, absolutely not, but how would they then find a way and, and kind of crack the code to get in with our national team? Yeah, they've. I would say they've got to have a great university career and do well there, and if they're still not cracking it, they've got to find a way to play pros overseas, and I think that's where we lose a lot. Like pro and playing just overseas is really hard. It's not an easy journey. It's not a fun time, especially earlier on, especially if you're starting in the lower leagues and it takes a lot of grit and you have to deal with a lot of challenging coaches going through that. And so I would love to find other ways of supporting our younger athletes. Going, I, So I've tried to invest in a little bit more, trying to find out good, good information about the programs that they're going into whether the teams are getting them good agents that can help them like that is essential for them because it's a grind. And if you had to guess how recent is that, do you feel that like university coaches are starting to pay a little bit more attention or have agencies or uh, I'm always amazed uh, just by doing the show, how often an athlete will just cold call another athlete or shoot them a message on social media. And that athlete will get back to them and say, Oh, I had a good experience at this club or stay away from them. Like it seems like the volleyball community is really connected, but is it fair to say when you started at Trinity, that wasn't part of the job that you needed to know what was happening overseas or what some random club in, in Switzerland was up to? For sure. I do nothing. And so I would just say, I've just started to figure it out and understand it. Shannon Windsor has a really good understanding of it and she knows a lot of the clubs around. And so she's really able to help with a lot of direction in that area. And then I'm just trying to find agents that have treated my athletes well. Like it for sure is new and I'm just a little bit overwhelmed, but trying to figure it out. But now we can also watch video and now we've got players over there and we can talk to them. I've talked to some of the top best players in the world and say, hey, out of your 10 years, 
how many years did you have a good quality coach? And they're like, two out of my 10. The other eight, I had absolute gong shows, like nut jobs. It's like, whoa, like, and they're at the highest level. So you've got to know, do your homework. And just one more thing I wanted to pick your brain on. And I think COVID sucked for a lot of things. And I think sport was taken away. But I think one benefit that came from the community is just the, the opportunity for coaches to present and share and make it a little bit more global and a little bit more. Uh, I thought your name popped up a lot and you were available. So why is it so important for you to speak to whether it's a small scale and you're speaking to a certain club and they're 10 coaches or why it's important to hop on a podcast like this and reach our dozens and dozens of listeners or or maybe a bigger platform like why, why is it so important for you to kind of open up the playbook and share so much and kind of help the next generation versus just hey i've got a good thing going but my way's my way and i, I don't want you know a coach from another u sports school to hear about what i'm doing like it, it seems like you're pretty open and i'm wondering why is that so deliberate and why are you so inclusive of what you're doing yeah, I, I feel we have a lonely job. And a lot of times as a head coach, unless you're another head coach, you really don't understand the stress, the pressure, the anxiety, the everything that goes along with it. And I had mentor coaches that invested in me. And I asked them, why are you willing to let me come in your gym and, and help out? Like, hey, we want to be able to give back. We want to be able to see that happens. And I want to do the same. I am an open book. My, my gym is open to anybody to come in and watch and learn if there's something that they can glean. And then they have to know that I'm going to be picking their brain. Can we can create an environment of learning and share little nuggets from each other so that we can grow volleyball within BC? Oh, and now in the country, now in Canada West. And can we make it even better? And so I want to learn from other people. And I think it doesn't matter what level you're at, whether you're a club coach, whether you're even just a high school coach, I've gotten great pieces of information from them. And so I think we just have to have a, an attitude like I can learn from anybody here. Well, Ryan, this this has been awesome. You've shared so much, and it's great to hear about your process and everything you've accomplished. And just one thing we've built into a, a tradition on the show is, even though you've been at the highest level of our sport, there's just something funny or odd that must have happened along the way because we have such a great community. So I was hoping you could just give us a laugh before we let you go. First of all, I think if you pulled my players, they would tell you story after story of how they've made fun of me and how oh, <laughs> fool I've been or things that I've done over the years. But one of kind of a uh, a moment that gave me a really good smile. And it's actually a little bit recently that I shared it was um, we were at a school and we were waiting for our servant pass and uh, a basketball coach was on just before us and he was drifting into our time. And I'm like, so I went to check with the coordinator. I'm like, Hey, is it our time? He's like, no coach is there. He's getting ready for playoffs. He's a little bit tense about it. Can you give him a little bit of time? Like, no problem. 10 minutes drifts into 15 minutes. I'm like, Whoa, like, it's starting to like, this is our time. Like, we've got to get going here. And out of the corner of my eye, I see Hillary Howe, one of my former planners, walk up to the basket of balls, like the guy shooting three-pointers around this hoop. She walked up to the bucket, grabs the ball, shoots it, swooshes it, drains in, turns around, and walks off. And I'm like, I can't believe that just happened. Like, I'm like, inside, I'm screaming, going, she just interrupted this guy's practice too. I'm like, <laughs> holy crap, this girl plays for me. This is awesome. I kind of look over at the coach and he looks at me and kind of gives me a smirk, gives me a kind of nod, turns around, grabs his player and walks off. So it was kind of a moment where we just had a really good laugh for a lot of years after that. 
<laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, we were lucky enough to get Hillary on the show, and I think if you haven't listened to it, definitely go back. But there's a there's a multi sport athlete there who's got a lot of confidence, and she wouldn't say who, but there was definitely some uh, sibling rivalries going on in the driveway. And I'm I'm guessing she won as many as she lost with that family. So good for her to kind of step up in that situation. She's an athletic young woman. That's for sure. Well, man, this this has been great. Thank you so much for for taking the time and sharing all that you did. Like uh, from an outsider, I've always been a fan of the program, and like you said, like uh, I said earlier, watching your box squad win nationals and seeing how they engage there, I, I knew there was some secret sauce going on there, and I'm I'm glad you kind of let us in behind the scenes so we could share and kind of steal some good ideas from you. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on, and, and best of luck heading into the season. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. It's been a ton of fun. <laughs>